If you enjoy the LA Intergroup's Virtual Speakers Bureau podcasts, consider joining over 500 OA members for our annual OA birthday party, which will be held January 17th through 19th in Los Angeles at the LAX Four Points Hotel. There's free transportation from the airport, so ditch the cold weather and join us for a wonderful weekend of OA recovery. Visit oabirthday.com for more information. Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 300 speaker files, links for you to subscribe to the podcast, and a place where you can donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Ed. My name is Ed. I'm a compulsive eater. And uh, um, for those of you who have heard me a couple of times, I will not be offended if you leave. um, Because my story has not changed. So, um, I think I want to thank Atusa for asking me to um, share with you this evening. Um, You know, there's a lot of people in this room whose program I have a lot of respect for. Um, so it makes me a little nervous because I would much rather sit and listen to you than um, be up here sharing. I, one of the things I do is I always compare my insights to your outsides. I always have and I probably always will. Um, and I try not to do it. And so if you all look really good to me, um, that means I'm not working my program hard enough. And it's just something that I struggle with all the time. Um, I've struggled it since, you know, since my earliest memories. Um, which is probably why I abused all the substances that I did while I was growing up, Um, which is probably not a bad place to start. Um, You know, I've heard some people say they felt like they were from a different planet. I just just knew that I I was... There was something missing. And um, I remember... Just never feeling a part of anything. My family, growing up, in school, um, uh, having friends. Having friends was one of the hardest things for me to do. Um, one, of, one of my moments of most pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization was, I remember I was in college and I was, I was at this party and um, there was this one guy that I was just, you know, I had a lot of respect for him, so I wanted to be friends with him. And he just looked at me one night, you know, and he had this this, 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 this look of disdain on his face, and he looked at me and he said, you just don't get it, do you? And I really didn't, you know. I, I honestly didn't. I was incapable of having empathy for another person. Um, I, and, and, and that made me incapable of having a real relationship with another person. Because once you found out about me, and it usually took about two to three weeks, you just didn't want me around. And that was my average length of time that, you know, I would hang out with people. Um, and I just remember going back and forth and back and forth from groups of friends, you know, up pretty much up until the time um, that I came to the program. Um, the first time through the program for me was through Alcoholics Anonymous in 1988, um, and I've been sober ever since. And um, I've been abstinent since October 12th of 2007. 
So I have uh, a little bit over six years. Is that right? Yes. There'll be seven years in uh, next October. So, um, as a result, I used to do some very weird stuff as a kid. Actually, that was my middle name. My, one of my nicknames was Ed Weirdo. Okay? So, um, it started really somewhere between the champagne that my parents never finished, the desserts that everybody left on the table that I would finish um, when everybody left, or hyperventilation, which was one of my favorite things to do. Um, and <laughs> we discovered, we discovered, I don't know who discovered it, it was probably me, um, <clears throat> that if you breathe in and out really fast, as much as you can, and then you hold your nose and you push your breath, right, and then you have somebody come up from behind you and squeeze you really hard, you get really dizzy, okay? <laughs> and then... It's even better if you're at the top of the hill that you lay down and roll down the hill. And uh, my front yard happened to have a little hill in it. So, you know, um, we'd be out there in the front yard hyperventilating. And uh, <laughs> and the rule was when the streetlights come on, everybody has to go home. But I was home already. So when the streetlights came on, all the other kids went home and I stayed in my front yard until my guy called in the house, you know, just rolling down the hill. Um, just getting as dizzy as I could um, and that was my first out you know that was my first out where I didn't have to feel um, I didn't have to face you know how uncomfortable I was um, I believe that you know this is interesting because I, I was I go to a step study on Saturday mornings and what I love about going to a step study is when you're concentrating on one part of the program you can do it, and I've been doing it for a lot of years, that every week I go, I learn something new, something that I can use in my daily life to help me stay abstinent. Um, last week was two, this week was three. And for me, the first three steps are so critical that I, well, it says it in the literature, that if we fail to find some sort of power, right, and turn our will and our life over to that power, the likelihood of our success in the rest of the program is pretty minimal. And I found that to be true. Um, but the reason I started talking about that was because um, I do things that I judge other people for doing. And, um, for example... One of the things that drives me crazy is, um, and I know if I'm like in good shape not spiritually is how I behave in traffic. And um, the other way is when I walk my dogs. And if my dogs are pissing me off, and I'm, I know I've got to go back and, and, and figure out why, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, people who, you're in a long line of traffic for a merge because it's really hard to get like on the 405 South, and um, and somebody will come like careening down the left-hand lane and then cut in at the last minute and stick out and have to slam on their brakes and then everybody else has to slam on their brakes, right? And I hate it when people do that, right? And I did it just the other day. <laughs> because I look at all those people standing in line and I'm going, why are they doing that? All they have to do is go around. Don't they understand that? But you see, they've accepted the fact that in order to get on the 405 South, they have to sit in this line. 
And when I'm having trouble accepting, then I have trouble sitting on that line. I've got to be somewhere. I've, you know, I can't sit here for an extra 30 seconds. Um, it drives me crazy. And that means to me that I'm not, that I'm not being accepting of what my life is on that particular day. I struggle from wanting to control life. I'm like the guy, uh, the director, who wants to direct the play, the story in the big book. Well, that is me to a T. The first time I read it, I related to it, and I, 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 I to this day, if um, it's such a big deal for me today because we just talked about all this stuff this morning, so it's in the, it's, it's just right in the, you know, the front of my head because. If I am in acceptance, I have a better example of this. I'm in the restaurant business, and I've been for all my life. And uh, and it's a great place to be if you want to eat, okay? <laughs> and it's also a great place to be if you don't want to eat, because then I can create whatever I want. See, um, I don't have to hide in the walk-in and eat all the cheesecake and all the whipped cream. Um and the nitrous while I'm at it, you know, so I was always that. <coughs> um, um, we used to drive, we used to, as kids, we used, to, we used to do that. We used to get cases of whipped cream. We'd buy all the milk stores out of whipped cream and drive around and suck all the nitrous out and then throw the cans out. Um, and so uh, I was having trouble keeping chefs. I had a couple of restaurants at one point, and I was having trouble keeping chefs. They could never live up to what I thought they should be, because that's, that's how I came up through the business. I was a chef. And uh, they could never live up to my expectations. And they'd last about two years, and then I'd wind up firing them, or I was so miserable to them, they quit. And um, I had a lot of people quit because I was an ass, you know. Um, I do believe today I'm a better boss, but I'll get to that. So... It was because I was not allowing them to be who they were. They were not living up to my expectations. And so, no wonder I couldn't have any friends. No wonder I couldn't, you know, have a relationship with a woman for longer than two or three weeks. Um, And uh, it, it it, it took me seven years of work in the steps to come to the realization that it was because I hadn't worked the third step. I hadn't really turned my will and my life over to another power. I was still running the show. I was still making people cry, cutting people off in traffic. I was just an ass. And, um, you know, and it, for some weird thing, you know, it was just another thing on the list of things that made me feel better was making you feel miserable. You know, there was eating. There was drugs, there was alcohol, there was the hyperventilation and the nitrous oxide. And, you know, the list is endless. But it was because I had an empty hole inside of me and I didn't know how to fill it. I just didn't know how to fill it. Um, <laughs> it talks in the literature about having a, a kit of spiritual tools that have laid at our feet when we come to this program. And uh, I was born without that kit. I believe some people are born with it. And I used to hate them, you know. Those were the comfortable people who could get up in a bunch of, in front of a bunch of people and dance and make a fool of themselves, in my opinion. Um, 
and I could never dance in front of people unless I was loaded. So um, if you could get up there, then I just thought you were kind of a, you know, you were not cool. Let's put it that way. You were not cool. So people who were like actors in high school or dancers, they were not cool. Um, and yet I've come to find that those are the people who were comfortable with themselves, and I could never be that comfortable so I could do that. Um, I still don't like to dance, though. So. Um, so, you know, food answered the, the formula for me at, a, at an early age. Um, I grew up in a household where um, it, was used as <coughs> it was used as a sedative. Um, you're not feeling well? Here, eat this. You're upset? Come on, let's go have, let's do this. Um, my mom also used to give us drugs, you know. You, what, you can't sleep here? Take this Nembutal. Um, <laughs> you know, by the time we were 16 or 17, she was making margaritas by the pitcher full. Um, and... Uh, but the interesting thing was, too, is that there was only so much food around the house, and so we used to hide it from each other. And, uh, you know, try to find someone's hiding place for the cookies or the bananas or whatever it was. And you could not keep ice cream in that house. No way. No way. Um, and the problem is, is that it got to me, before I came to this program, it got to the point where... I wasn't fighting anybody for the cookies. I wasn't fighting anybody for the ice cream. I was just eating it all myself. And I was eating it, you know, with the lights off. Um, I was slamming the freezer shut if anybody came in the kitchen. And it became a joke around the house, you know, that if the cookies were gone, it's like, oh, Dad ate them again, you know. And for them, it was a joke. And, you know, the interesting thing is, is for a lot of people, it is a joke. You know, oh, I feel like crap today. I just ate a, you know, so I went and had a pint of Haagen-Dazs. Um, and there is scientific proof to, you know, to prove that the consumption of that kind of fat does produce something in our brain that makes us, you know, calm down and gives us a sense of comfort. And I'm addicted to that. Um, I'm addicted to high-fat foods, sugar foods. Um, I have to stay away from junk foods. Um, I have not eaten in a fast food restaurant in over seven years. Um, there are other things that I'm trying to cut out as well. Um, my bottom line abstinence is no binging, no matter what, and I count my calories. And it's very unusual for me, unless I do a lot of exercise, to go over uh, 2,000 to 2,200 calories a day. That's the only way I can do it. Um, because... I started drifting in this in this in this area in the last two years. Um, I would sit and listen to people to talk, and they you know they don't use the scale and and they don't care how much they weigh. And um, you know, as long as I don't binge, I'm okay. Or as long as I you know just maintain my bottom line abstinence, I'm okay. And what that led to for me was. Um, I started loosening up my food a little bit and started justifying certain things. And then before I realized it, you know, the new pants that I had bought when I lost the first 70 pounds are starting to get a little tight. And um, I, so then I just, you know, well, that's okay because, you know what, I'm not binging. But I wasn't feeling comfortable, you know. 
and I wasn't I wasn't really owning up to it. And the beauty about how this program works for me is I was just having a conversation with two people after this meeting one night, and I consider them my friends because now I've known them for you know the whole time I've been abstinent, um, and I've watched one of them lose a hundred pounds. Oh my God, that's just an amazing thing to me. You know, I mean, I was never like over 300 pounds, you know? I mean, Michael's lost well over 100 pounds, right? Um, and I met Michael when he came in. And to see that kind of transformation in someone happen and to see the spark light in their eye, it took me a long time before I could see it, you know? But I saw it happen in this particular meeting more than once and how they catch on fire with the program and how it all of a sudden clicks and it makes sense and it says, oh yeah, that's it, you know. And for me, it's relying on that power when I open the refrigerator door or when I'm walking through the grocery store. My dad used to run his hand along the candy bags until he found an open one, you know, so I learned that so <laughs> <laughs> it was all about food in my house growing up, man. It was all about food. Food and alcohol. Um, actually, some of my friends were jealous because their parents weren't quite so loose. Um, but I found, I found a set of parents that were even looser for that. They were looser than my parents, and that's where we all used to hang out every night in high school. You know? We even used, we even used to buy pot from this one guy's dad. That's, that's how crazy that household was. Um, Anyway, so I suppose, you know, my first, my first experience where I ate to the point where I got sick was, um, I remember I was in high school and um, I had a, a friend whose dad worked for planners and I love roasted nuts and I have to stay away from them. Um, so he gave me a five pound can of cashews <laughs> and um, I did not share that five-pound can. I locked myself in my bedroom, and I turned out the lights, and I kept getting to the point where I would almost throw up, I would calm down, and then I'd go back to eating. And I probably finished that five-pound. I remember finishing it in like like two days. Five pounds of cashews in two days. And... Um, and, you know, alcoholics say, you know, they get drunk on tequila and they get so sick they never drink tequila again. I went right back to cashews after that. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, and, you know, there were foods like that throughout my life. Um, and it was always a source of comfort. And as I got older, though, you know, I knew that I had a problem well along the line somewhere. Um, I realized that I was doing things and, you know, people couldn't keep up with me. And whether it was drinking, whether it was drugs, whether it was eating, people could not keep up with me. I said, no, I'm not, I'm not going there with you, you know. Um, I was finishing their dinners and mine. It's great to have kids, especially when they don't like what they're eating, because when I'm clearing the table, I can finish mine, I can finish theirs, um, I can eat off of their plate. Um, that's another thing I don't do. I don't eat off of anybody else's plate. I don't allow people to throw food my, on my plate because that was that was the joke too when I had kids. It's like, oh, here he'll take it, you know. So so they just used to scrape it off on my plate. Sure, I'd finish it, you know, and then I'd be finishing it when I was doing the dishes too. Um, and so that's another one of my rules is I don't eat off of anybody's plate. I won't finish your dinner, 
and I won't eat food off the ground anymore, um, and I won't eat food from the garbage can anymore, which I've been known to do. Um, uh, I've also been known to eat food with green mold on it, just scrape it off. Didn't matter if I was hungry enough, um, and I never got sick from it. So I'm lucky that I had that kind of cast iron stomach, you know. So here I am. I'm. What was it when I got asked when I was 19 years sober, and I thought I was working a pretty decent program. How much time do I have? Okay, perfect. Um, I thought I was working a pretty decent program until some things started to happen in my life where uh, food started to be a nice panacea for me again. You know, I had up to this point um, seven years ago, I had I was able to lose 50, 60 pounds at a time. But diets always left me with huge cravings. And so by the time I hit my goal, I'd go back to in and out or, you know, and then it'd be back in like less than a month. It would be back. Um, and, it, you know, and I see that where I work all the time. I mean, I've seen people come in and they just like, it's amazing the transformation. And then two months later, they're right back where they were before they started. And, um, and that was me. You know, that was me. Especially being in the business that I was in. Um, I could eat whatever I wanted, as much as I wanted, for as long as I wanted. Um, and there was nobody there to tell me not to do it. Um, and that, you know. So, so, up and down and up and down and up and down. And then, um, the kicker was, in 1997, my wife got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And I was the primary caregiver throughout that time. And I want to back up a little bit because there was something I forgot to talk about before I get into that. Um, it, it, it says in the book that we share in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. And I haven't really shared certain things about what I was like um, growing up and, um, and in my first marriage. Um, the other thing, and you know, and I mentioned that, you know, I was mean to other people and that used to make me feel better, make me feel superior, but I also used to do it to animals, um, and it's not something I'm proud of at all. Um, my parents bought me a dog, and I abused them so badly they had to take away from me uh, after about two weeks. And um, I wasn't much better to people sometimes, too. Um, my first wife, I remember... Um, she had gotten pregnant, so she had an abortion, and she wanted me to drive her to get the abortion, and I said, well, you know, you got yourself into this trouble. You can get yourself out of it. I got something else I got to do, and that's the kind of person I was, and um, I, am, I am lucky to say that, you know, part of, part of my amends was to um, um, have pets again, and uh, so we bought a Golden Retriever for the kids, and um, man, I was I was <laughs> just making that amends. I felt so much better, and and I will tell you that that dog had me so wrapped around her little paw. When she died, I cried like a baby, you know. And now, you know, we've been we've had five dogs now. We have three right now at one time, 
And uh, when I come home, the first thing I do is I get down on my hands and knees and they just jump all over me, you know? Um, we have this little guy, um, you know, and if I don't get out on my hands and knees, he just claws at me until I get down there, you know? Um, they sleep with us, you know? Um, I just, um, you know, how do you go from abusing animals to the point where you love them so much that you grieve deeply when they die. I don't know how else to do it except through the steps. For me, there's no other way through it. So, when my wife got diagnosed, I mean, it wasn't a question. I was going to take a leave of absence from work, and, and um, but I, have, I, I work at such a great place. They let me work a flexible schedule, and I didn't miss a penny for my paychecks for the six months she was going to treatments and I was probably there maybe I was at work maybe 30% of the time um, I was in you know the, uh, the treatment rooms with my laptop doing work um, sleeping in the hospital um, and uh, I didn't miss a single chemo treatment I didn't miss a single what they call a hydration where you have to get fluids days after your chemo because you so you don't get dehydrated um, she had a real hard time eating, so she had to get these fluids, otherwise she would get she got really badly dehydrated. Um, and so I didn't miss a single one through the six months, and I don't do that. I don't say that because I want to pass on the back. You know, that's strictly the program. That right there is the steps. It's not me. Left to my own devices, she would have been driving herself. And trust me, I saw it there. I saw it there, and I and, and I once said to the nurse, I said, "Why are there so many single women here?" And they and and they said because when the husbands find out the diagnosis, they say, "Well, I didn't sign on for that," and they take off, you know. And um, it's a reality. It's a reality. Um, and the other thing about the program, you know, we use it in our marriage, and the, and and the deal is that we don't leave no matter what, and and the gifts that come from that. Man, I tell you, I can't even begin to explain to you. You know, we've been together now, um, what year is it? Thirteen? <laughs> she won't listen to this, so I can, I can say that. Um, it, it's uh, 33 plus years that we've been married, and we've been together for um, 36. So... Um, and, you know, we wouldn't have made it. We wouldn't have made it. So anyway, so she gets diagnosed, and it's a stressful time, okay, no matter what. And I didn't have anything else to turn to, so I turned to the food. And it was as bad as ever. And I basically, I just said, I'm out, you know. I don't care. I went to Jerry's Deli. I went, you know, I was eating hamburger. All the stuff I know I'm not supposed to eat, I was eating. And then I started hiding it. I had bags of candy in my car, under my seat. Um, I went back to, you know, stealing the ice cream and, you know, slamming the freezer door shut when anybody came in the room. Um, and I got so uncomfortable. I got so uncomfortable. Um, I, I, I got embarrassed by the way I was beginning to look. Um, I got up to a size 40 waist. Um, I came out of high school with a 32, so I was up to a 40. And I'm now between a 34 and a 36. And uh, when I bought that first pair of 40s, I said, uh-oh. This, 
there's something wrong with this picture here. But it took me a few more it took me a few more weeks. Now I had met a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who uh, I hadn't seen for a while and he showed up at a meeting and uh he was like, Man, what happened to you? Um, he goes, Oh, Readers Anonymous. And I said, Whoa, that's fabulous. You know, good for you. And I just it just laid there in the back of my mind for years, you know, until one more time I couldn't say no to food. And that for me, I mean it hurts right here when I can't say no. When I can't say no. And I'm and I'm and I'm and I'm doing things that I know I shouldn't do, that I don't want to do, that I'm gonna feel so horrible about in twenty minutes after I'm done. So why bother stop, right? So I called him. And I said, Okay, you know what? I think I need to talk to you about this OA stuff. And he said, okay, so meet me at a meeting. And he gave me the, it was probably this meeting, too. Um, I, yeah, this was my first meeting. And I said, okay, I'll think about it. And uh, a couple weeks later, it got even worse. So I met him here. And this was my first meeting in October of uh, 2007. And, uh, you know, I've been abstinent ever since. Um, no, it hasn't been perfect. Um, but I will tell you that I have not binged in well over six years. And um, my weight's been pretty stable. I'm up a little higher than I'd like to be. So I'm going back to doing some things that I did when I first got asked in it. And I feel better in here about it, you know. I gain a little bit more self-respect about it. And so then I don't get as bad at the end of the day, because that's the worst time of the day for me. Um, so the steps. Um, I believe that there is absolutely nothing that we can't get through with each other and the steps. And I've seen it, and I've lived it. Um, and the most, well, was the scariest case of this was, um, it was 4 o'clock in the morning, and um, my wife was really sick. We didn't know what to do. I'd already called the hospital, and they said, well, do this. It wasn't working. They said, well, she's not better in the morning. Bring her in. And uh, she couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. You know, basically, it was one of those times when she wanted to die. And um, I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. What I mean, what do I do? You know, there was nothing she would eat. There was nothing I could give her. There was no more pills. There was no more nothing to make her feel better, you know. Um, and all I could think to do was to... Um, still so hard because it's just it's just so incredible um, I got on my hands and knees and I grabbed her hands we were in bed and I uh, I started to go through the first three steps and uh, you know we're powerless over cancer and our lives are unmanageable and um, you know we have to believe that you know that there's a power out there who's going to take care of you no matter what and um and that meant even if she died, I had to be willing to accept that.
because I was fighting it. Um, and I had to be willing to accept that everything was going to be okay even if she died. So we're going to go through this and, and, you know, and then we really had to turn it over. And that was the hardest thing to do was to turn it over at that point. And she made it through that treatment. Um, it was a brutal treatment. Very few women actually make it through. Maybe 30% of the women who undergo this particular type of treatment make it through it. And uh, she made it through, man, and she's cancer-free seven years now. And uh, yeah, that's, um, you know, that's the program. You know, do I believe now that... You know, God came into our lives and, you know, you know, made the cancer go away. No, that's not what I believe. That's not the type of faith that I have. But I had enough faith and she had enough faith to get up each morning and to face the day and we would sit and we would go through the first three steps every single morning and it gave her the strength to go through it. It gave her the acceptance, okay, whatever is going to be is going to be, but I'm going to get through this. You know, and uh, um, and I've seen it. I've seen it with other people. They've gone through bankruptcies and divorces and marriages and and uh, you know and and deaths and um, you know diseases. And uh, the one thing that keeps coming back to when I talk to people after they go through something like that, they get recommitted to the program, and then the program becomes even stronger in their life. And that happened for me. It, it literally, you know, was one of those life-changing events that I, you know, um, it, it, it just made me appreciate everything that I have on a, on a, on a daily basis. And, you know, I, I, I kick myself some days when I don't remember that all we really have is today. You know, and I start getting worried about two and three weeks and four weeks or, you know, some shit I did yesterday. Um, so... Um, <sighs> yeah, that's um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So thank you. Yeah. So we have seven minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. So what are the things that I'm doing now that I used to do that I'm bringing back into my acid? Um, some sugar snuck in, and that that has to be gone. That's gone. Um, I was I was I was spreading things out during the day. So rather than sit and have a snack at one particular time, I was taking that food and spreading it out. And that gets dangerous for me. So I have to be very specific, and it has to happen in a certain time frame. And I can't be like you know standing at the bar grabbing a couple handfuls of trail mix and saying, well, okay, so that's like X number of calories, and then later on have something else. And then I have my 250 or 300 calorie snack. You know, I can't do that. If I'm going to do it, it has to be planned. And I have to stick to it. You know, I can't, basically I can't go off script. I can't be discretionary about it. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Thank you. What do my snacks look like? Food. No. <laughs> um, my favorite snack is a small Jamba Juice. You know, one of the one of the pure fruit ones. That's my favorite one. Um, apples, and right now there are tremendous apples out there. Um, man, there's some. Oh God, I picked up some great ones today. You know, some heirloom apples, heirloom apples. 
Um, number one, they're more nutritious. You know, um, um, it might be. Um, you know, I still eat um, bread, so I haven't cut out white flour. So you know, it might be like uh, a piece of toast. You know, it could be like a half a muffin. Um, so, but it's mostly fruit. It's mostly fruit. My food plan. I'm always confused about that. The difference between abstinence and food plan. So, I think my food plan is three meals a day and two snacks. That's my food plan. And um, I, I also count the calories. I have a little app on my phone, and um, <clears throat> it's uh, it's actually really good to have because then I can see where I'm at during the day, and I know if I'm like reaching where I should be at any point in the day. You know, and that means that my snack needs to be, you know, even smaller later in the afternoon. And I and I make it through, you know, I make it through. And then when I'm done, I'm done. And I can't stretch it out. Uh, I was afraid somebody was going to ask that question. Um, what is my daily spiritual practice? My daily spiritual practice was non-existent for a long time. Um... I, to this day, struggle with my concept of a higher power. Um, I, I, I struggle with calling my higher power God. And so, I do not pray on a daily basis, but I do meditate. And I've just really stepped up that practice in the last year. Um, and I'm really glad that I did. The other part of my spiritual practice is that I read some of the literature every single day. Um, and it may be in the morning or it may be at night. And then at the end of every day, I do a third step. I mean, a tenth step. Um, and I go through my day and I want to be sure that there's nobody that I owe an amends to um, or that I did anything that will cause me to have to make an amends. Because in the heat of the moment sometimes, I won't think I have to make an amends. I'll be justified in it. But five or six hours later, if I'm truthful with myself, I'll know. And I'll really know when I wake up the next morning. That if I feel really crappy and hungover, I, I need to go make an amends to that person right away. So, that's the, that's the most of it. I do have a power, and if you'd like to talk about it after the meeting, uh, I'll be more than happy to talk to you about it. Yes. Outside of not eating like a kid, how your parenting skills have changed. Oh, wow. Well, you know, our kids went to a lot of meetings. We believe that, um, you know, taking our kids to meetings, they needed to know what, we, my, my wife's in the program too, and that, you know, they needed to know where I was. I believe that. You know, I sponsor some guys who have kids and they're not sure they want to take their kids to meetings, you know, and their kids don't know they're in the program. I didn't want to keep it a secret. You know, they knew. Um, and we used the principles of the steps raising our kids. And um, I'm proud to say, you know, that our kids were never grounded. Um, I stopped hitting them once I got sober. Um, and... We taught them that when they make a commitment, they have to follow through with it. And, 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 and that, I think, has turned them into beautiful human beings. Just following some basic principles. You know, we were honest with them and they were honest with us. 
Um, and that whole thing about commitment was, I remember, you know, my son was really impulsive growing up. He got it from his mom. <laughs> and uh, so he was playing volleyball in high school and uh, didn't like the coach the senior year and wanted to quit. And I said, but, well, you can't because, you know, you made a commitment. You've got to finish it out. That's all there is to it. Your team's depending upon you. You can't do it. He didn't want to do it. And so, you know, he went kicking and screaming, right? Well, that year they wind up in the city championships, right? And <laughs> this is the best part. He gets voted the spiritual leader of the team is really right that's so it works it works so thank you